my name is Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about the coolest thing cinema can offer, says a 12-year-old boy who just discovered <laughs> Quentin Tarantino, the long take. And we're doing this podcast all in one take. That's right. No edits, he <laughs> lied. There'll be seamless edits that we're going to try to, like, Will will turn toward the microphone on his back and we'll cut and it'll continue from there. Yeah. Cutting out all the parts where I, like, break down in tears. <laughs> yeah, that's say, right. I'm such a fraud. <laughs> where I'm yelling at you and I'm like, do better. <laughs> so the long take is something something that as a filmmaker myself you kind of get obsessed with because it's this quantitative idea of cinema as something that like anyone could see and go wow that is impressive i think for kind of young people who are getting into film uh you know the the sorts of filmmakers that young people young men let's face it gravitate towards are people like tarantino scorsese brian de palma brian de palma these filmmakers who announce their presence very strongly in a very kind of macho way like we are the authors of this film film is our mode of expression and like the long take is this very obvious manifestation of that authorship it's them declaring look at what i can do look at what i can do it's the most like brechtian device you can use stylistically because the idea of a long take the viewer has to be aware of it for it to have an impact like the director wants Mm -hmm. this idea that like I'm sitting in the audience and I realize, whoa, this take has been going on for like two minutes. That's crazy. Because otherwise, like my mom or my dad sitting in the audience watching a movie, they're never going to realize that. That will never have an impact on them. That fact that this goes on without a cut for a really long time. So it's really only for like the cinephiles or people that want to be impressed by the filmmaker. But is a long take really cinema? Isn't montage cinema? Mm-hmm. Uh, does a long take always have to be this uh, showy bit of uh, acrobatics with actors coming in and out of everywhere? Or could it be like a Chantal Ackerman looking at a tree mm-hmm. blowing the wind for what seems like 40 minutes? Could it be Andy Warhol parking his camera in front Empire. of the Empire State Building? Yes. Well, this is what we're going to talk about on this episode. I wanted to talk a little bit about the director, uh, Mikhail Kalatozov, who is is a Georgian filmmaker who made films like Cranes Are Flying, which won a Palme d'Or when it came out in 1957. But the most famous film, I would say, in his filmography is one called I Am Cuba, which came out in 1964 to no acclaim and kind of uh, pans until it was rediscovered and re-released in the 90s by uh, people like uh, Francis Ford Coppola and Martin Scorsese. Those are the two who I think put their name on the re-release. Yeah, it wasn't them that like discovered the film and re-released it, but they're the ones that were like the champions of it to get it out there. And they also helped get it restored. So I Am Cuba was this big giant project that was organized by um, the Cuban government uh, when they had suddenly come back into power. They were a communist country and Russia wanted to get in Involved. And the way that they helped out was by doing this kind of mega production. This is a movie that sort of uh, follows the 1959 Cuban Revolution through four stories. Mm-hmm. The first is about uh, a humble fruit peddler and his fiancée who live in a shantytown. And uh, the fiancée ends up prostituting herself to uh, an American tourist. There's another story about a farmer, a hardworking farmer whose land is sold out from under him by his landlord. There's a story about a student rebellion that is suppressed. And finally, there's a story about an apolitical farmer uh, who ends up becoming a reluctant revolutionary. And everything that Will said just there are the entire stories. Like, there's no real twists or turns. It's mostly like anecdotes or just kind of illustrations of a situation that would lead the country to go communist. But really, this movie's all about the visual style. That's all it is. Mm -hmm. And if you listen to the director and the cinematographer who had a really strong hand in making the movie, uh, Sergei Urozevsky, it's that like they wanted to create an idea of poetics on screen and in their mind poetics would be created by these long impossible takes and that this kind of like disconnect from what's happening this idea of like what you're watching is perfection it would reach a kind of transcendental level well you know when this movie came out it was panned by critics in cuba and in the soviet union i think also as being uh, bourgeois exactly it was too lush and it was too in your face with his style and frankly i think they've got a point Mm-hmm. I mean, this is not a uh, direct film. I mean, so the most famous uh, shot in this movie comes very early on. It's at this uh, luxury tourist hotel in Havana before the revolution.
Revolution, and you see all of these tourists reveling, uh, you know, having fun, kind of kind of ugly Yankee guys, but they're also you know beautiful women in bikinis, mm-hmm. and the camera there's a beauty pageant going on, and the camera you know like mills around on this rooftop deck, and then the camera floats down to another rooftop deck lower where there is a pool. And then finally the camera follows a woman into the pool and it's submerged into the pool. Now, if that sounds familiar to you, it's because Boogie Nights ripped it off for that famous scene. And I think that says a lot about what long takes mean to filmmakers, because if you listen to Paul Thomas Anderson talk on the commentary for Boogie Nights, like this idea of these lengthy show-off he takes is very important to him. Mm -hmm. And that's something that would go away as he continued to make movies. You know, I get the charge of being bourgeois because oh yeah this seems awesome though well yeah like there's nothing humble about it uh you know it's a movie that you're always kind of at a distance from it you're always Mm -hmm. kind of marveling at the technique you're not necessarily uh invested in the stories of these humble people and also it makes pre-revolutionary cuba look awesome it does especially when you capture it in a way that every frame looks perfect. This is a film that took two years to make. Uh-huh. I think it was supposed to take only a few months. And the director and the cinematographer, like, they would do the Akira Kurosawa thing of, let's just wait, like, a number of days so the sky looks perfect so we can film it. Which is everything that communism should not be, like, trying to get it perfect. <laughs> There's another early seed where like the camera is like floating through a nightclub actually the visual style kind of reminds me of like fear and loathing in las vegas it does completely yeah <laughs> but like all these like bamboo trees it keeps like panning past it's always coming up really close to people's faces in like wide angle lenses and they're like laughing in a way to kind of make them look horrific but it just kind of looks goofy and fun yeah and, and in this nightclub scene where you're seeing all these kind of like vulgar american tourists who are you know look, looking mm. at the sex workers and you know, being very lascivious and lustful. And then you see drunk American soldiers go by. And, you know, the the sense is that there are these Americans who use this country basically as their their toilet. Yes. But, I mean, it still looks really cool. And it's a film that, as a piece of propaganda, fails completely. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not emotionally involving in the way that I think they wanted it to be. Mm -hmm. The idea that if you capture something so beautifully that it will impact the audience. Because what you're seeing is, like, even like the farmer who goes through the situation where his land's taken away from him and he ends up burning it and kind of like lighting everything that he owns on fire and dying in the process and with this take you can only marvel at the take which starts on him two feet away from a flaming building Mm -hmm. and the camera pulls out in like a two minute shot until he's just like a point in the distance yeah and all you can think about when you watch that is not the suffering that this guy is going through it's wow this is beautiful and how did they do that which is a completely different feeling than what propaganda or even emotionally compelling cinema in the way that we think that it should work. I do like this movie, though. Yes. I find it quite thrilling. I I think it's great. And I think that it's great in the way that everyone, when it was re-released, kind of approached it. Mm -hmm. This idea that, like, look at this technique, look at this beauty, and that's what the movie is. So that's a movie where, you know, the form and maybe the content of the long takes are at odds. Yes. But let's explore some other uses of the long take. Mm -hmm. So when you think of a long take, what is like the first thing that comes into your mind specifically? The first one that comes into my mind is Goodfellas. Which I rewatched that shot because this is the one that when you go to film theory and I went to a class when I was in high school at a university, they show you like first. They're like, (laughs) look at this. This is a long take. Because this is a take that has a story mechanism in it. Henry Hill's on top of the world. Exactly. He's so powerful. He can go anywhere he wants. He can, he can you know, make the fucking Red Sea part, mm-hmm. you know. And he could just go through the back of things to get to the front where he's important. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's what the take means. Do you think that it has value in that? Because I think it does. Oh, I, I think, you know, it tells you everything you need to know about him at that time. And also, it's a thrilling technical accomplishment. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's okay that it shows off. Like, yeah. it's, it's, it's fun to... To, to watch Scorsese able to choreograph this complicated maneuver. Henry Hill going into the basement of the Copacabana, walking through the kitchen, mm-hmm. all the all the cooks and the waiters moving past, then he goes up to the audience, and then Henny Youngman is on stage. Like, it, it's, it's fun, like, in the way that a ballet is fun. And it's a take as well that, in the wake of it, doesn't even look that impressive. Like, it's fine. Like, I watched it again, and you go, okay. Well, let's see you do it, Justin. I have, if you looked at the film Impossible Horror and Teddy Bomb. Actually, Teddy Bomb has a good uh, long, take. long take as well. Yeah, it the does. The POV shot, right? Yeah, yeah, it goes for quite a few minutes. I'll talk about that at the end of the sure. episode and why <laughs> I approach it that way. But, like, 
in the wake of that, like everyone wanted to be like, oh, this is a long take. This is a long take. Because the one that I think of is Touch of Evil, Mm -hmm. which is Orson Welles, like big, like all over the place take that appears differently in the versions that you watch. Mm -hmm. Because in the theatrical version of Touch of Evil, if no one has seen the shot, go and watch it. It's still technically like jaw dropping at this point in time, but it starts like on a bomb and then it follows the bomb as it goes through this like Mexican border town. Mm -hmm. And you're also introduced to two of the main characters, Charlton Heston and Janet Lee, you find out they've just been married. You know, you find out that Charlton Heston is a, a cop and he's just busted this case. And he's going off on his honeymoon. And you also get a sense of, you know, the space of this border town and you get a sense of the atmosphere of the border town, this decadent kind of kind of seedy, ugly atmosphere where like the law is is maybe not very powerful. And I think that one of the reasons that Orson Welles went with this long take is that by starting it on the bomb, it just creates this idea of suspense, right? Uh-huh. Which is it's not only like when is the take going to end when you realize that it's been going on for this long, but mm-hmm. when is the bomb going to go off? Because what a lot of directors do when they do this long take is that it ends with like a big climactic thing. In this case, a car exploding. Mm -hmm. And it's also this long take. You lose the kind of flow of where the bomb is because you're following all these characters. And then suddenly Mm -hmm. the perspective changes to Charlton Heston and Janet Leigh. And you're like, wait, where's the bomb? Mm -hmm. Like, where is it at this point in time? And that's what that kind of stylistic technique does. But as you alluded to earlier, there are also two versions of this scene. Mm -hmm. The one that Universal put out theatrically against Orson Welles' wishes has uh, the titles over it, you know, starring Charlton Heston, Orson Welles. With music as well, playing behind it. With Henry Mancini's music, which you can see still hear bits of in Orson Welles' preferred version, but Welles' preferred version had the sound of the streets, kind of an Altman-esque uh, mm-hmm. tapestry. A lot, Yeah, you hear voices, you hear car sounds, you hear CD-sounding music, you hear a bit of Mancini's music. And I like both versions. I love the Henry Mancini score, but I think Welles' version um, gives you a better sense of decadent atmosphere of this border town and the way that the border is going to be a metaphor for this sort of no man's land where the rule of law doesn't exist. Well, what the long take also does in that situation is kind of positioned by having sounds coming in and out Mm -hmm. the idea that like there's more going on around this movie that like when you're panning across things like there's other stories like music or bits Mm -hmm. of dialogue coming in, but then you move away from it and you're just kind of ignoring it. It goes on. It exists on the borders of this, but this is not what you're focusing on. Like in I Am Cuba, the director loves to like pan across faces as if going like look at all these people these people all have stories there's like one scene in a village when like a white uh rich guy who just um woke up from sleeping with a woman that he paid Mm -hmm. uh realizes that like he's in a decrepit village and all these people are miserable and stuff like that and that's what the long take achieves is like as you pan it's the cumulative effect of it Mm -hmm. of that like you don't have the cut to release that tension and that you see all of these faces in the same way that touch of evil you can hear all these sounds and stuff like that it's like a lived-in world Another thing that Touch of Evil does is announce Orson Welles' comeback, mm-hmm. which in this case... Like, look at me! Yeah, in this case, it turned out to be short-lived, but it's as if he's saying, yeah, I'm back, I'm back in Hollywood, I have a studio at my disposal, look at me. I mean, Robert Altman does something similar in The Player, I yeah, think. which was his comeback picture, unlike mm-hmm. Orson Welles' one, yeah. which is that in The Player, Altman does a long take where characters are talking about long takes mm-hmm. and the best ones, and it also sets up this world of the studio backlot. Yeah, and it, in fact, it opens with the clapper, and you hear him say, action, and it's like him saying, here I am, I'm reclaiming my art. And you could also trace that back to, like, Day for Night, which also starts with, like, an incredibly long take, where it's also on a film set, and you just see all the pieces kind of playing together on this like fake movie that's taking place in this Truffaut universe. I think what the long take is used for mostly is to give this sense of you are there Mm -hmm. immersion. Um, I mean, we didn't talk about The Cranes Are Flying, which is another movie by Mikhail uh, Kaladazov, the director of I Am Cuba. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, by the way. There's a not especially impressive long take in that movie, but it's in there on a battlefield. Mm -hmm that kind of immerses you into the battlefield environment, but maybe a 
a more famous example would be Children of Man. Yeah, Children of Man is like the post-2000, like Martin Scorsese long take obsession mm-hmm. for uh, film school students. Clive Owen running across uh, the battlefield while bombs are going off all around him and then he goes into that bombed out building mm-hmm. on the stairs. Or the scene where he's in the car and they keep like backing up and going forward and as people are coming from them at, at every side. You know, in a way, I, I think the effect of that scene is a bit different. Yes. Because... The first time I saw Children of Men, I didn't notice that that car scene was a long take. But I mean, like what that scene achieves is this level of like claustrophobia, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you watch that scene again, if unless I'm mistaken, it never leaves that car. Like it's going to the front and the back. And that's basically the camera moves that it's making. It, it gives you a kind of powerlessness because yes. you can't really see you know, who these attackers are who are Mm. coming from the outside. But also the way, you know, for a couple minutes before, the way the camera moves through the car, like it gives you a false sense of security. Mm -hmm. Like nothing can happen until there's a cut. But then when there's no cut and stuff is happening, you're like, all right, I'm in this filmmaker's hands. They can do anything. Even if you don't realize it, there's a Mm. feeling of claustrophobia and you can't see what's going on. And it's all defined by, I believe the camera is also moving in a way that's not following action it's just turning kind of on its own axis that's right as if like okay i'm gonna move past this so you don't know what's gonna happen next until i come back here and the way he did it i think was that he mounted a camera on a zip line Mm -hmm. on top of the car and sort of uh, remote controlled it and i think that that's one of the issues with long takes is that they're not only like wow i can't believe they did that is it also takes the viewer a little bit out of it and you go wow, how did they do that? Yeah. Is that you're sitting there and once you realize that this has been going on for a long time, you ask yourself, how could they have done this? But I actually think that car scene in Children of Men is quite successful because as I said, when I saw it for the first time, I didn't realize what was happening. But I don't think that the latter scene in the movie works as well as that car scene Mm. because there is a kind of disconnect from what's going on when you realize like, oh wow, they're not going to cut. So you become aware of What mistakes have they made? And Uh when is the cut going to come? Well, I think maybe my favorite You Are There Mm. uh, long take is the one in one of our favorite movies, Hard Boiled. Oh, yeah. Which is actually a cheat because there is a cut in it, but it's... There's actually multiple cuts in Hard Boiled. Uh, This is something that, like, I always ask myself when I watch these long takes is how important is it that they achieved it correctly? And they they didn't, like you said, cheat. Because... At first, like my gut reaction is like, oh, well, that's not real. Like you cheated that to get that effect because then that removes the level of, wow, they did that all in one go. Mm-hmm. When when you watch Hard Boiled, even the lengths of the shot as it is without any cuts is insane. The number of stunts and stuff like that that they have in there. I mean, I think there are some long takes where I would be disappointed if it were faked. Oh, really? Like what? I mean... I'm not sure if I... Well, the one in Children of Men, maybe. Yeah. But the one in Hard Boiled, where there's the shootout in the hospital, and then Tony Lung accidentally shoots a cop, mm-hmm. and then he goes with Chow Yun-Fat into the elevator, and then they, you know, have a moment when he's freaking out in the elevator, and then the elevator opens on, you know, one of the upper floors, then they go back out and start shooting people again. I don't care as much that it's a cheat, yes. because I feel like it works anyway. Mm-hmm. Like, it's... What it's really about is not so much the virtuosity of it, but with what the character did and what he was feeling in that moment. And so when he goes into the elevator and he has this moment of... Uh, reflection. Yeah. Moment of reflection, this moment where he has to talk to China Fat about what he's done, like, you're living with him in that moment. Yeah, I mean, like, the action film is the genre, I would say, where long takes appear the most. It's the action film, and it's also the, this is my first film, and I'm making like a Sundance (laughs) drama. Those are the two extremes that this long take appear in. Because in the art house drama, it's a filmmaker going, look at me. And in an action film, the idea of action and physical movement can be translated directly to the way that the camera is moving. Certain silent comedies as well, Mm -hmm. by the way, like the length of the shots in a movie like City Lights are very long, because it's all about like the balletic grace of his motion in that movie but you know in an action movie a movie like the protector with tony Jaw, oh that long take is insane it has that very famous long take where he's running up this pagoda Mm -hmm. basically you know breaking one arm after another after another and like tossing people over it and stuff like that and it's about you know the isn't it amazing 
not so much the filmmaking, but the performance. It's also the idea of exhaustion. When you watch him go, you see him sweating and you see him doing all this stuff. And there's some flub things in there. Like they didn't quite get them perfectly, Mm -hmm. but that just adds to the realism of what you're seeing because there's no hidden cuts in Tom Yungun or the protector in that shot. So there are some long takes that are, I mean, a lot of long takes are basically a stunt. Yes. And sometimes it's a stunt for the filmmaker, but sometimes it's a stunt for the performer. Mm-hmm. So, for example, Les Miserables with Anne Hathaway. Yes. She won the Oscar, I think, on Based that, on that one long take. On that on one her. long take where she sings, I, Dr- I Dreamed a Dream. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I wonder, like, why the long take did get so much uh, currency, especially, I would say, like, 80s onward, because, like, long takes are something that existed forever. Like, live television, like, <laughs> when TV was coming up, like, all of that stuff was done in one go. Just theater in of itself is a long take, but it's not as impressive as when it's done in cinema. I think just because we know that uh, cinema is a big, cumbersome art form. We know how mm-hmm. heavy the cameras are. We know that lighting is difficult. Yeah. But, like, it's funny that, like, on Tom Yungun, the person who suffered the most in that movie was the Steadicam operator. Because that thing is heavy. And if you watch it behind the scenes, he has to run up these stairs and he's just like sweating and gasping and stuff like that. That's also an amazing thing about I Am Cuba, by the way. In I Am Cuba, he apparently had the camera. Well, they didn't even have Steadicams back then. They had big fucking heavy cameras. Yeah. Apparently he had it like rigged to his vest and then there would be a complex network of pulleys and cranes. Yes. And, and like hooks that, that a, an army of assistance would would manipulate there's an insane shot in i am cuba where it starts on a funeral on the street goes up into a building across a bunch of people and then goes out the window and starts to follow the funeral which means that there's a guy just dangling in the air holding that camera as it's going across and this is communist cuba that guy's probably dead it probably ended the take with him just falling well good he's a goddamn communist (laughs) (laughs) but we've been talking about the long take i think in the idea of like virtuosity like look at these camera moves and look at it going up or down and across and all this stuff what's happening on it but when you look at classic hollywood like a lot of these long takes are not what you would think that they are like something like gun crazy Mm -hmm. which is the um joseph h lewis picture that has a famous long take which is essentially just static in the back of the car the camera actually moves forward and back a little bit but it's mostly just like locked down and you follow these two people as they rob a bank Mm -hmm. and the impact of it comes from the fact that you're trapped, like in Children of Men, in this car, unable to escape as stuff is going on around the car. There's no cut to release that pressure. Yeah, but, you know, Gun Crazy is a very unusual film. In most Hollywood films of the 30s and 40s, the editing is supposed to be invisible. Yes. And I mean, a lot of theorists would tell you that the thing that differentiates cinema from other art forms is the montage. Yeah, well, I mean, André Bazin, the guy who was like the grandpappy of the French New Wave, he was all about the idea of cinema not being intrusive to the viewer. That Mm -hmm. stuff, in his opinion, would play better if it was in long takes when you didn't realize there were long takes. He liked the idea of cinema as capturing realism yes which is i think uh, an ideological difference between him and somebody like jean-luc godard mm. or also sergey eisenstein they're they're people who are interested in how like one shot juxtaposed with the next shot can create an idea but then you have people like uh, max ophels who they would create films that takes that would go on forever that would like have insane tracks Mm -hmm. and they're not filmmakers that we really think about because those takes are not always really showy they're just long and they go all over the place but it's mostly about shifting perspective as opposed to look at me i think from the classical studio era the quintessential long take movie is alfred hitchcock's rope yes which uh, i mean his dream was to make a movie that was just one continuous take but he failed there's well, some hard cuts in there well i mean he failed because uh you know a reel of film in those days could only accommodate 10 minutes mm-hmm. so you know every 10 minutes there would be a very obviously disguised cut there's but actually supposed to be in real time. I watched it recently and there's actually some hard cuts where it like cuts to a different angle in the room, which is that like the most frustrating thing you can see in a movie, which is someone trying a long take and you're like, ah, you didn't get it. Like you have to yeah. punch into something and then go back to the long take to continue that shot. But I think, you know, he was interested in the long take because he was interested in why can't film do what theater does. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I think that rope is actually a very successful experiment in that regard because there's, I think, two or three hard cuts and like one of those hard cuts is very specific which is it's cutting as if it's like 
bam like look like this is important and it's like uh jimmy stewart realizing that something is wrong at the party that he's at and while it is like a really artificial film it's also a film that is moving all over the place like if hitchcock loved the idea of film being theater he also loved the idea of controlling the viewer's point of view and going like oh now you have to look at this now you have to look at that now you can see this but you can't see that over there in a way that's more suspenseful than cutting directly because the viewer is aware that you're moving into something or moving away from something while a cut will just bring you right to it. Mm-hmm. We've been talking a lot about the long take as a manifestation of the director's authorship, mm-hmm. the director's presence. But there are certain, especially experimental films, where it's like the director seeding control. Now, Andy Warhol, I think, is the most obvious example because he would often make these films 30 minutes long, you know, so so one 16-millimeter reel of film. That he would actually kind of make into a 30-minute reel of film. There's a way to do it that you could kind of, like, attach them together. Right. So you could get that 30 minutes without having to cut the camera. But, you know, it would just be a static shot and he would have, you know, one person or maybe several people in front of it. He would basically say, okay, what do you think of this? Yeah, I think we kind of talked about this during the Chantal Ackerman episode as well because she's a filmmaker who really enjoyed showing things for a long time where at first you're like all right what am I supposed to be looking at okay this is not cutting all right what am I thinking about now? So every viewer will have like a different experience with the movie. It becomes more participatory. And it also, I think Chantal Ackerman is the quintessential filmmaker for making you realize that not all boredom is the same. (laughs) That's right. Like like boredom can have texture. Boredom can be used for different purposes. But I mean, aside from Chantal Ackerman, there are certain filmmakers who use duration. Somebody like the Taiwanese filmmaker, Siming Lang. Mm -hmm. You know, I saw a film of his at TIFF a few years ago called Journey to the West, where one of the early shots is a very close-up shot of Denis Levant's face. It just holds on it forever. And then eventually, you know, a single tear rolls down Denis Levant's cheek. And, you know, within the headspace you're in while you're watching that movie, that becomes like an action scene. Yes. That's like, here is this explosion of activity, and it's a tear. We talked about it when we did the... Um, exp- we talked about that when we did the experimental film episode. The idea that, like, even when you watch Empire, and you're just looking at this building... And suddenly a bird flies by. You're like, whoa, yes, yes. That there's motion on screen. But I also think like some of these, you know, some of the really hard art filmmakers, there can be something enveloping in the long take. Uh, Simon Lang's film Stray Dogs. Mm -hmm. The penultimate shot is, I think, a 15 minute shot of two people staring at something off screen and you know there's something about the lighting in it and there's something about you know the sound of the train that passes Mm -hmm. behind where like i'm not sure quite how to describe it in a in a rational way but i feel like i'm in that tunnel with them i feel that like the experimental film have the same problem that like new filmmakers have which is the idea that the long take can mean something in of itself Mm -hmm. like it will gain meaning the longer you look at it. And it's like, that's not always true. Sometimes it's just like, Ugh, why, why is this long? Like, you haven't given any kind of valid reason or story reason or thematic reason mm-hmm. for it to have this length, for me to become aware of it, and for me to go, what is going on? Name names, you bastard. Uh, I can't think of any specific <laughs> I know what you're talking about, right? though, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. And it's the same thing with, like, show-offy filmmakers. I feel like Brian De Palma... I mean, he's a filmmaker that I really like, but that one of the things that he brought to cinema was this idea of style for style's sake, Mm -hmm. that like that is the content of the movie. And because of that, it kind of affected other people negatively where they go, well, I want to be Brian De Palma. I want to show off. I want to be the auteur of my film. Yeah. I mean, I like uh, some of Brian De Palma's films. Blow Up is great. Yeah. Blow Up's great. And I enjoy some of the like excess of his style Mm -hmm. and the joy of his style. But, you know, a movie that I don't respect a whole lot is Birdman. That's a movie that's supposed to be like one continuous take. Of yes. course it isn't really, but I guess Alejandro Gonzalez in Yaritu would tell you that the visual style of the movie is supposed to place you in the subjective headspace of the Michael Keaton character. Yeah, but it doesn't. It does you just disconnected from what's going on. You're like, wow, that's impressive. Yeah, exactly. And and I don't yeah, I don't think it shows his point of view at all. No. It, it seems totally divorced from it. And so it just becomes this kind of uh flailing show offy exercise. And I feel like every film that he's made since then, like uh The Revenant, has that same problem mm. where it's like, look at me, look what I'm doing mm. which is probably the tagline of this episode should be like, look at me, it's the mm. longest in the world yeah but as far as like other favorite long take stuff 
Uh, one that no one ever mentions, and I looked on lists online while we were doing this episode to make sure that like I didn't miss anything, is a little film called Running Time, starring my man Bruce Campbell. Nice. It's 70 minutes long, and it's one seemingly continuous long take that follows Bruce Campbell getting out of jail, meeting up with his friends, robbing a bank, and the kind of aftermath of that. Mm-hmm. It's one of those like little like pictures that I feel works in the way that it doesn't reach too far. Uh-huh. Like It has this main idea, and it just executes it. That's why I appreciate it. Even though, I'll warn you, the first time I watched it and it ended, I went, that's it? So be ready for that. Uh, well, uh, my girlfriend, Dancy, reminded me of Gus Van Zandt's Elephant. Oh, yeah, that's right. In relation to Goodfellas, because they're mm-hmm. both movies, you know, Elephant... Uh, ha- like Goodfellas has a lot of scenes where you know the camera will follow somebody as they walk a long distance mm-hmm. and they're both very much about mobility and its relation to power but the power is totally opposite in Elephant something about the long takes uh, show you the limit of the space that these kids can occupy the limit of their world and it makes you realize how much is out of bounds for them at that period of time Gus Van Sant was kind of obsessed with the idea of this long take like Jerry the movie that stars Matt Damon and Casey Affleck which was them just walking through a desert until they died in these like endlessly long takes and then the capital of that trilogy Last Days, the Kurt Cobain movie, yeah. where you just follow him in the day before that he commits suicide. Jerry, I think, was he was very much under the influence of Bellatar, yes. the, the long take. I'm a uh, big daddy. fan of Bellatar. Yeah, I've, I've only seen the Turin horse, but I really loved it. Yeah, and that one does have that long mm-hmm. take style, especially the opening of it, which follows a guy just kind of like riding mm-hmm. his horse as the camera swoops all around him. And then you have something like uh, Satan Tango, which is just mostly following people walking down the street as like leaves blow around them. I've, I've got to say Workmeister Harmonies because I know it's very well regarded. And also it's 39 shots in 145 minutes. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just watched a movie by, um, I can't say his name. He's a Greek filmmaker, uh, The Traveling Players, mm-hmm. which is like this epic movie that does one of those long take things where a take will take you through the past and present without a cut. And the only issue with that film is that you're watching it and you're like, I have no historical base in anything that's going on. <laughs> so you can only connect with it as far as the emotions that you can see. I mean, we didn't even talk about Russian Ark, which is like the famous long take Which movie. I have to admit I haven't seen. Really? Uh, I know, I'm very ashamed. But that's an example where it's going through... Um, a museum. The Russian Hermitage Museum. Yeah. And you kind of get a sense of like the history of Russia while you're traveling through in that one long take. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I haven't seen it. I can't really say it. I but... just watched it yesterday. You'll be watching going, I don't know who these people are. Okay, that, <laughs> yes. that, that's probably true. But I guess it's probably show- the idea of like time is this continuum. Yeah, and I think that that's like when people want to make like a movie that's one long take like Victoria which came out a few years ago which is another bank robbery film that is done without any cuts and that movie I think works as a story even though you know it's two hours long and it feels long as well as a technical exercise because you watch it and you go how did they not cut or like screw up this film like that's what's crazy about it mm-hmm. and as far as myself like we talked about like Teddy Bomb has a long take in it of course it had to have one because it's my first movie you're a young man yeah. and that was because where we were shooting we didn't have permission to shoot there we were shooting in a school so we couldn't have like guys running around with like knives or stuff like that <laughs> so I shot it from the POV of a character and so it's the POV going through the school so you're not only making the viewer looking through the eyes of the bad guy and you don't know where the hero is, it also gives me the opportunity to make it super long and not get in trouble if anybody comes around and goes, hey, what are you doing? He has that fun shot where, like, Peter's character grabs uh, Pierce Dirks and, like, pushes him up against a locker and you see it from his point of view. Yeah, And that also has a thing where, which I stole from Lady in the Lake, which was, like, a um, detective adaptation Mm. back in the day, which is, like, a character looks at, at themselves in the mirror and you just put the person like a little bit to the left of the camera. Mm-hmm. And that way, like you don't see anybody holding the camera, but it looks like they're looking at themselves in the reflection, which is always fun. Like that's just technical, like show offy stuff. Oh, and I guess while we're just saying a few more favorite mm-hmm. long takes, I impossible might... horror, impossible horror. <laughs> yeah. but, but I think I might also throw in uh, Antonioni's The Passenger. The, yes. The penultimate shot of that movie where the camera slowly, 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 I think over 10 minutes or so goes through the bars of a window and then turns around and you see that you know while the take has been going on a death has occurred Mm -hmm. and uh the big question that you ask while watching is how did the camera get through those bars uh it's because they switched the sets around completely (laughs) like completely i love the shot in tarkovsky's nostalgia where the guy is walking across the um (laughs) 
pool and he he's holding a candle and he can't let it go out and the camera keeps pushing in and out as he's trying to make this very slow motion without letting that flame disappear and then he gets towards the end and the, you, you it gotta goes watch out. the movie go no spoilers okay <laughs> i mean I didn't even mention, like, Johnny Toe's Breaking News has an insane opening take, which is a long gunfight that not only sets up all the players in the scenario, but also lets the whole action scene play out in its entirety. Oh, uh, Jean-Luc Godard's Weekend. Yep. That tracking across all the cars. And that's the perfect one to end on yeah, because we'll, end of cinema. We'll be here all day if we keep going. <laughs> yeah. All right. So as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And this week we did a Patreon episode on the total filmmaker by the person that anybody thinks about when they think about the total filmmaker, Jerry Lewis. That's right. It's his textbook for how to make films, which was created out of the lectures that he gave at the University of Southern California in the early 1970s. And it was published as a book. And it's actually a pretty well-regarded book. And uh, me and Will talk about it at length and kind of revisit Jerry's oeuvre a little bit. Because, you know, longtime fans will recall that Jerry Lewis was our very first episode. And I don't think we've uh, returned to Jerry that much other than we're very sad that he passed away. And that was pretty much it. Passing references. You know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's never far from my thoughts. <laughs> but in this episode, you get like uncut Jerry. That's right. <laughs> and so it's $5 a month. You get four episodes every month. It's patreon.com slash important cinema club podcast. And I just like to mention the new Patreon subscribers that we got because we really appreciate it. So a shout out to David Isbiter, David Laurie, Jeffrey Sigrist, Turka Yulinen, R period, Marco Balabant, Jacob Wallingford, J.P. McDonald. Devitt, Matt H., Edward Kelly, Stuart Shivers, Alex Sinesi, and Ian Dillingham. Thank you very much. And become a Patreon subscriber. Get your name mispronounced on the podcast. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, as far as letters go, we have one here from Michael Carr. It goes, very nice podcast. P.S. More Matthew Kumar. Hey there, Justin and Will. Uh, Matthew has his own podcast. <laughs> I'm a big fan of the podcast, having just spent the last month or so listening to every episode in reverse order, and a couple of them twice. Wow. Oh, man. Thank that, you. That's far more of me than I would want. <laughs> I love the way you can mix highbrow discussion with lowbrow humor. <laughs> that's us. <laughs> Where else can I hear someone make a Borat reference while discussing Brussel? I think that was the episode, but please edit my letter accordingly if incorrect, as I hate for my letter to tarnish your impeccable record of accuracy. Whoa, he puts that that word in quotes was a lapse of lazy fact checking. I can't remember. I feel like Borat is something I'm always thinking about. Yeah, but I, I've kind of like tamped it down on the podcast. <laughs> Will basically starts every episode by going, my wife, my wife, my wife, just to get it out of the system. You know, he when Justin read the first part of that letter and he said, very nice podcast, you know what I was thinking, don't you? <laughs> what? I thought, very nice. <laughs> of course. <laughs> you truly are the champagne of film podcasts. Oh, shucks. Effervescent in Intoxicating and likely to cause a mess if you get overexcited. Very nice. Holy shit. Your episode on Matt Farley was a watershed moment in my appreciation of the world of indie filmmaking. Oh, do you hear that, Matt? Oh, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which, I would love to purchase a copy of Teddy Bomb and Possible Horror, Justin, as by this point, I feel like it's almost a sign reading. It is. And you can buy it online. <laughs> also, you should totally sue Blumhouse for upgrade. Yeah, I should. Now, finally, <laughs> I come to the postscript title of my letter, which is to request more Matthew Kumar guest spots on the podcast, please. Or perhaps even more Will Sloan guest spots on Loose Cannons, which I'm slowly working through in between important Cinema Club episodes as a kind of methadone treatment for my heroin-like addiction to ICC. Hear that, Matthew? It's methadone to ICC's heroin. Now, I told Matthew this, and he said, I feel like Loose Cannons is more like the crack cocaine compared <laughs> to important Cinema Club. Just insanity for 30 minutes i say the letter writer has a good idea there let's get me on uh, the loose cannons <laughs> podcast mixing it up while the banter be between you two is amazing something about hearing matthew's deep analysis of populist trash like twins comes crashing against the rocks of critical thinking and film theory that is will sloan <laughs> makes for stimulating and hilarious listening having said that justin you are obviously the man glue that holds the uneasy menage a trois together with your limitless enthusiasm so please don't feel left out of my gushing praise as i want to lather you in as much as the other two. Menage a trois, lather. They're <laughs> um, <laughs> just getting very sensual. Uh, there's a reason that Will and Matthew don't do too many podcasts together is that on Loose Cannons, I tend to bully Matthew. And when Matthew comes to this podcast, he tends to bully Will. So... And then who do I have? <laughs> exactly. I uh, think Luke I'm just... Savage. <laughs> I think I, well, I think I have to start bullying you more. Yeah. And then, and then you know, it'll be like a, a snake eating its own tail. But no, I love Matthew and I think he's great whenever he's on the podcast. And uh, if 
you are not a Patreon subscriber, letter writer, you should go listen to our Christmas episode because mm. there's a very hilarious tense fight between Matthew and Will about a subject I will not mention, <laughs> but that when you hear it, it's very funny. These things usually end with a question. Uh, I wanted to ask a Godzilla question as though I know the special is locked in for the 200th episode. Yep. That's right. The freaking shout outs to Godzilla Final Wars and the Donger. He's talking about our man, Don Fry. I've decided to start working my way through the Godzilla films, but there are just too many. Could you suggest which films I should watch and in which order? Like, which are the important ones? First of all, there are not too many. No. Uh, every single one is a masterpiece. We did a Loose Cannons episode where me and Matthew and a bunch of my friends did a Godzilla marathon. And we had almost like a perfect collection of Godzilla movies in that. And I don't remember every one. I would say, watch the Godzilla, the first one. Mm-hmm. King Kong vs. Godzilla. First Godzilla in color. First one that he really fights another monster. He does it in Godzilla Raids again, but it's not the same when it's King Kong. After that, you get into the, like, Jun Fukuda era. Well, I think I think watch Godzilla vs. Mothra. Yes. That's probably the best of the 1960s movies Mm -hmm. in the kind of kooky 70s era. The craziest one is the one that MST3K made popular, which is Godzilla vs. Megalon. Mm -hmm. Uh, You get a lot of stock footage in that one, but if that's, like, the only one you're watching, you're going to get, like, the craziest example of that one thing. I think it's pretty fun if you can find, like, uh, the good widescreen version of it, Mm -hmm. because it used to be in a lot of terrible pan and scan copies, but that's the one where Godzilla slides across the landscape on his tail. That's right. Uh, I would also recommend Godzilla's Revenge, which is not one that's held in very high regard, which is Ishiro Honda, the director of the original Godzilla, made kind of like a kiddie uh, cut-up movie of all the previous ones. Mm -hmm. I recommend it only because... It's much better than people um, give it credit for because it is a story of a latchkey kid who's living in this desolation where like nobody's around, everything's kind of gray, and he has to go to this magical fantasy land where he can hang out with... um, Minya, the son of Godzilla. Yeah, who kind of talks like this in the movie. It's also kind of fun as like a best of Godzilla. Exactly. It's got... I think I might also suggest uh, it's got a lot of slow spots, but Invasion of Astro Monster, also known as uh, Godzilla versus Monster Zero. Yeah, that's one where Godzilla goes to space. Can't argue with that. And And I would not recommend destroy all monsters unless you're going through all of them, because that one is boring. But, you know, once you get into the later years, Mm -hmm. um, I think uh, two that I might recommend are, you know, in addition to Godzilla Final Wars, Godzilla 2000, I think, has a lot of stuff in it. Yep. Uh, Godzilla 2000 is an interesting kind of transition point into like the 2000 era or as they're known the Millennium series of Godzilla films I would recommend in the 90s I mean, if you're going to do 2000, you don't want to do Godzilla 85 because they're basically the same. Mm-hmm. But I would recommend Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla 2. And this is the 90s one. It's very confusing because the Mechagodzilla films all kind of sound the same. But this is one that has almost everything in it. Uh, and as far as the Millennium series, I would also recommend Godzilla All Out Monster Attack. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah. Ghidorah. Giant all Monsters, Monsters All Attack. attack. Yeah. Because that's the one that was directed by an outside filmmaker. Because usually it was like Toho Studio Men. It was made by the guy who did the great 90s gamer series so it has kind of like a meaner edge in the other movies and also has Godzilla in his most terrifying form where he is the representation of the dead souls of Hiroshima and he has white eyes <laughs> yeah and it's also got a ton of monster stuff in it which oh, is really, so much fun really stuff. what you want, want from a Godzilla movie and of course Godzilla Final Wars the greatest movie of all time so hopefully we gave you enough there to go and tackle we, them we named like all of them the series yeah. practically uh, I would not recommend going from the beginning to the ending that is whew, that's a rough journey well I don't I don't think anybody's discovered the Godzilla movies from beginning to no. end. Like, you know, when we were kids, when anybody was kids, it was like you would see, you know, just whichever ones were the easiest to come by, mm. whichever ones fell in front of you first. Yeah. And I feel like if you go with those highlights, you can then like go into different pockets and stuff mm. like that to discover other fun ones. Such a rich uh, and multi-layered saga. <laughs> I'm very excited to get to that 200th episode, which, you know, feels like it's a million years away, but then we'll be there like we were with that Jackie Chan episode. That's right. I mean, it's possible we'll be doing this podcast for the rest of our lives. <laughs> yeah. Have you thought about that? It could happen. I mean, if people start paying us enough that we can like live off well, if we can quit our jobs, that'd be <laughs> that'd yeah. be perfect. Uh, as we've said, we say it every like dozen episodes. If there's a rich billionaire out there who just wants to make like sure. thousands of dollars each month, we will do this 
Just we'll do it in your house. And, you know, if sexual favors are required, <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm sure it's negotiable. P.S. Sorry for the ridiculous long letter. I have many more questions. And most importantly, fuck the big chill. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> you can't always get what you want. Imagine I'm uh, Jeff Goldblum and the uh, corners of my mouth are just turning up at the sound of that. <laughs> anyway. We talked about that movie on our TIFF podcast. <laughs> Thank you very much for your letter. I'm sorry we couldn't get to all your questions, but we really appreciate it. Uh, Mickey Carr. And we have a second letter. This one's a really short. It goes, hello, lads. It's from Jasmine Chorley. Oh, my good friend. Oh, is it? Yes. That's why it's a very uh, direct cut. Longtime listener, first time emailer. In episode number 23, What is Canadian Cinema? You mentioned that in the plot of Men with Brooms, the dead coach's ashes are put into the curling rock. How is that physically possible? <laughs> I know that if anyone can answer this question, it is Paul Gross scholars, Will and Justin. Thank you kindly, Jasmine. Perhaps they hollowed it out. That's right. Or perhaps they bought a curling uh, making factory and then poured the ashes in the mold. Yeah. You know, it's funny hearing episode 22. It's like, isn't it wild that there were conversations that we had two years ago that are just like... <laughs> that people are listening to now? Yeah, that that's insane. Uh, we're probably not very woke in the early episodes. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is a good letter because I recently went to a Doors Open at a the University of Toronto where you could walk through the uh, Rare Books Library and they had a thing laid out of film memorabilia. <laughs> I couldn't believe that on this table of film memorabilia, the script for Paul Gross's Men With Brooms. Oh, <laughs> Just what a heavenly. I like reached over to touch it. They're like, no, it's like the world's shittiest planet Hollywood. <laughs> do you think that they went through their archives and are like, I guess people like men with brooms. Nobody likes men with brooms, do they? Are there fans out there? Uh, I think I believe his name is Mr. Paul Gross. <laughs> That's right. And as per usual, you can follow me at DeClue J on Twitter. I'm at uh, Will Sloan ESQ. And Justin DeClue on Letterboxd. Uh, and that's D-E-C-L-O-U-X. And make sure to go and rate and review us on iTunes. Said it last week, nobody did. Huh. So what are we doing next week, Justin? Next week, we're going back to classic Hollywood, or some would say Hollywood's best year, 1939. The year that gave us Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz. Uh, lots of other movies, too. But it's the year that, especially when we were growing up, people would constantly say, this is when classic Hollywood <laughs> did hit Zenith. I think so. I think they did. Oh, they? really? Yeah. I mean, I looked online. There's multiple books about that year. Yeah, because uh, other movies that came out that year include Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, mm-hmm. Ninochka, um, I don't know, more movies that I'm forgetting. So we're going to talk about a year, and we're going to watch Gone with the Wind. Uh, I'm not looking forward to that. <laughs> and The Wizard of Oz, a film that I'm not that big a fan of and the wizard of oz probably the first movie i ever loved really ah when i'm looking forward to that conversation really yeah come back next week until then my name is justin the clue i'm will sloan thanks for listening so i see that you saw solo a star wars story a film by ron howard this week yeah a film that um when me and my friends were talking about a few months ago i went you know i think this will be the first star wars film i don't see on its opening day I was very adamant about it. I'm like, I'm not seeing it. Guess what I saw on opening day? Because all my friends were like, I'm getting tickets. You all want Justin? Come on, let's go. And I kept going, it's a Ron Howard movie. It's not going to be good. I did a whole episode on Ron Howard where I watched like 15 of his movies just struggling. You went a little crazy that week, I felt. <laughs> to, to find one where I'm like, this is good. Spoiler. I didn't. Mm. And so the idea of Ron Howard directing a Han Solo movie is probably the least exciting thing I could imagine. But then even less exciting because famously he took over the reins from two other filmmakers who had a more distinctive vision. Yeah, Chris Lord and Phil Miller, uh, the showrunners of Clone High and the directors of Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, 21 Jump Street, 22 Jump Street, and The Lego Movie. Mm -hmm. Filmmakers that have never had a flop or even a critically unsuccessful film. And it seems, based on the many kind of behind-the-scenes reports about this movie, that they were going for a bit of a jokier, more of a Guardians of the Galaxy tone. Uh, A.K.A. every single movie they've made Mm -hmm. before they went and directed Solo. And they were fired, I have to say, two weeks or a week before filming was done, Mm -hmm. which, in terms of big Hollywood productions, that's not a lot of screen time. So I think this Solo movie is interesting because it isn't doing very well. I mean, it no. had, yeah, I mean, it had a $80 million opening weekend, mm. but it's flopping overseas. And 
there is no excitement around it. It's come into theaters with just this air of doom around it. Well, I think that from the get-go, the idea of a Han Solo prequel film is exciting for no one. Yeah. Because like even me, I love Star Wars. I love Han Solo. Why would I want to see how he got his name Solo? Well, uh, aren't you a little curious uh, in that line when he said, I won that ship off you fair and square. Don't you want to hear the story about that? <laughs> no, I do not. <laughs> Don't you want to see a fun adventure with this guy that you know is going to get stabbed later? <laughs> and I remember that like when they hired Phil Lord and Chris Miller, those are essentially the only directors they could hire to make me excited about this. Mm -hmm. Because you know that the way that they would have approached it would have been like irreverent and kind of making fun of it, but at the same time, treating it with respect as far as like emotions and storytelling goes. Because even if you look at something that's as crashly commercial as the Lego movie, like it treats the emotional stakes of its characters mm -hmm. with a seriousness that like, if it had just been all over the place, just a parody mm -hmm. would have not worked. The crazy thing about this Han Solo movie to me is that it's kind of coasting along on the nostalgia and the goodwill of a movie that came out 40 years ago. Yeah, I, you I, know? I think it's the idea that Solo is so much in the popular consciousness that as far as money people go, and George Lucas was supposedly writing this like before he sold Lucasfilm to Disney, mm. and they must think that it's an easy sell. Like This must have been mm. for them like... This will guarantee to make money because people like this character. But I mean, on some level, like selling something on nostalgia is not sustainable because, no. you know, The Force Awakens comes out and it's like, oh boy, we're going to get to see these characters again. And then The Last Jedi comes out and it's like, oh boy, we're going to get to see Luke Skywalker again. And then, well, sorry, I, I like, I had my Han Solo yeah. fix. Show me something new. <laughs> and the thing about <laughs> Solo is that it's a fine movie that when you watch it, all you can think about is this would have been way more fun with the other two guys. Mm -hmm. Like, it's the decision that they made of do you want something that people don't expect or do you want what people expect? Mm -hmm. And I think that as studio executives, they completely, like, made the wrong choice. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons that supposedly, like, Phil Lord and Chris Miller got booted was that Lawrence Kasdan and his son were the one that wrote the script for Solo. So this is the old guard of Lucasfilm, the guy that wrote Empire Strikes Back. He wrote drafts of Indiana Jones. Mm -hmm. And he was supposedly really pissed that they were going off of his script. Yeah, th these guys are known for their improv. Yeah, right? and stuff like that, and like going from weird angles. Another thing that's weird about it is they released it, you know, six months after the last Star Wars movie. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, there used to be a time, I mean, as recently as six months ago, when a new Star Wars movie was Exciting. an event. Yeah. And now it's, you know, the, the brand is getting watered down. And also, had they delayed it longer, you know, people would have had time to forget all this negative publicity, all mm. this behind the scenes stuff. Because I don't think there was even a trailer for this movie until about two months ago. Yeah. And I know that a lot of people are writing like, oh, Han Solo, it's underperforming, blah, blah, blah. It's flopping overseas. Like, none of this matters to a company as big as Disney or Lucasfilm. What matters is how the film is received. And the fact that it's not even received critically very well, like, that's a huge problem. Mm. And it's just them going in a direction that was a mistake, which is difficult, right? Because now these executives are in a situation where a vocal minority hated Last Jedi because it was too different and it did a bunch of crazy stuff. And people don't want, like, mushed over leftovers. It's kind of like the episode of The Simpsons where it's like, wait, so you want crazy wizards that are grounded <laughs> in real life and stuff like that. And I think that there's a way to do those things. Mm. Basically, what Lucasfilm has to realize is that the old Star Wars fans are complaining about The Last Jedi. It's not theirs anymore, which is what that movie is about. Uh-huh. I probably won't see the Han Solo movie. No, you won't. Isn't and especially crazy? now that we've yeah. talked about it. Yeah. Fe feels good. Feels liberating. Yeah, you don't need to see it. Like, yeah. I would say, if anybody said, hey, should I see Solo? I go, you're a big Star Wars fan? They go, yeah, I really like Star Wars. I would go, well, you don't have to see it. 